Happy Father's Day, all the dads, the stepdads, granddads, bonus dads. We're so glad to have you in church. And for all of you joining us online, we are so grateful that you're able to join us today. Uh, it's a great day. We honor the men in our lives who influence us and who invest in us. And we honor you and we thank God for you today. Uh, how many are ready for some dad's cookies after the service? It's going to be good. Well, my kids didn't know what to get me for Father's Day, and so they gave me a hundred bucks and told me to go and buy myself something that would make my life easier, and so I went out and bought my wife a gift. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, it's funny though, being in a relationship does help you reprioritize what you value, doesn't it? I heard someone say this week that a father is a man who has pictures of his kids in his wallet where his money used to be. <laughs> I, love, I love family. I love my family. I love my kids. You guys are great kids most of the time. And it's good. One of the things we love to do as a family is to explore new places. Anyone love to explore new places? You know, we love to go new places. And sometimes we, we go and we want to just, you know, go in blind. We just want to go and discover and find out what there is to find out. But sometimes we go places and we try to do a little advanced research. Where's all the go in blind people? You're like, just let it unfold in front of you. Anyone like that? Yeah, where's all the research people? Like, you know where all the tourist destinations are. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we got to go to uh, Seattle and check out the city. It was great. And I was doing some research. Where should we go in Seattle? And so on the internet, they were talking about this tourist destination. And uh, this is how they described it. Down an unassuming alleyway in Pike Place Market is a hidden work of art. This unexpected and colorful display is an intriguing representation of Seattle's unique charm and character. How many would be intrigued to go to this place and see what uh, you know, defines Seattle so creatively? Well, here it is. We got there, and uh, this is the Seattle gum wall. <laughs> Anyone been to the Seattle gum wall? Right? We, we got there, and, and since the 1990s, people have been adding their gum to the Seattle gum wall. And so my family and I, we got there. We had to make sure that we made our contribution uh, to the gum wall. Uh, there you can see me right there. And uh, my kids were thoroughly disgusted, and my wife had the antibacterial, you know, all going right here. It's amazing. You know, it, it made me think, like, how was this allowed to become a thing? Right? Like, who at one point were like, you know what, there's a lot of artistic merit to this. I bet tourists would come from British Columbia to see this work of art. You know, I don't know how this became a, a thing, really. 
But I, you could say that I'm kind of an artist now because I was part of this public installation. You know, sociologists have some thoughts about how this became a thing. Uh, in uh, 1982, uh, American sociologists Wilson and Kelling, uh, they, they uh, put together, they wrote a journal article on what they called the broken windows theory. The broken windows theory is basically their belief or theory that a building with multiple broken windows uh, would be much more likely and prone to have more windows broken into it, uh, broken in it than one that didn't have any broken windows at all. And so what their, what their theory was is that because people viewed the building as neglected, they would assume that no one else in the community would care if they further vandalized the building. Uh, and so what they, they, they just discovered is that fixing the first broken windows kind of created this culture of expectation. Uh, uh, as they repair the damage, it would change the way people viewed their neighborhood and their community and even themselves. And so their broken windows theory uh, started to draw a lot of discussion. And, and, uh, and so they were just saying that the, the culture, the environment that we are immersed in really affects our belief and our behavior uh, about where we live and also about ourselves. It's like if you've ever been somewhere, you know, where, where there's a lot of litter. You know, they were saying, you know, a place that has litter is more likely to see more litter, right? You know, when you got your banana peel and you're driving down, if, if it's a clean, pristine road, you're more likely to keep it in your car, right? But if you're in a kind of grungy area, you're more likely to throw it out the window or something to that nature. Same with the gum wall. When those first pieces of gum were allowed to stay on the wall, it created an environment that enticed more people to join the cause. And so today, uh, we have this fantastic and really gross masterpiece <laughs> in Seattle. Kelling was in, he was able to test out his theory in 1984. He was actually hired as a consultant in New York City to help them uh, rid the city and the subways of graffiti. And so really they were able to see if we were able to address graffiti more promptly and quickly, would that create an environment that would be less likely to be vandalized by graffiti? It worked so effectively by 1993, New York City, uh, the mayor actually adopted a no tolerance policy uh, for graffiti, but also for petty crime. They, what they found is that if we enforce, uh, you know, um, law enforcement on petty crime, we believe it's more likely to result in decreased larger scale crime. And, and so what they saw after two years is that felonies were down 40% and the homicide rate has been cut in half. Now, some people would be like, how do you relate graffiti to the homicide rate? And so there's a lot of discussion about zero tolerance policing and all that. So I know some of our police officers in our church, they might be able to, to tell us a little bit more about the discussion behind that. But the idea of the broken window theory is that broken windows send a clear message that no one cares, that it's inevitable, and that we might as well just accept the broken windows of our neighborhood. You know, in many ways that we've become accustomed to broken windows in our culture, haven't we? We think about our political system. I don't think there's any of us that wouldn't say politics are broken in our country, in North America as a whole. We look at our education system and we hear about how it's broken, as not effective. We look at the financial situation that we live in and, and there's a brokenness to the world that we live in. And so in some ways it can seem inevitable and in that we just kind of lived with it. Like what more could we do? You know, we are all touched by the broken windows of relationship, aren't we? 
I think it would be safe to say that every person in this place has been affected by brokenness within some form of relationship, whether it's in, uh, uh, in a marriage or in a home, uh, with our children, with our friendships. All of us have been equally affected, not equally, but all of us have been affected in some way. And if it's not us, you know, that's gone through a divorce or gone through uh, tension with her parent or child or a sibling, then it's one of our extended family. We've all been touched by broken relationships. You know, it can be overwhelming to think about 37 million Canadians all experiencing brokenness in our relationships. What could we do to help mend and heal and bring uh, healing and wholeness to relationships. You know, if we look at our nation, that just seems overwhelming. If we brought it down to even our province or even to our city here in Penticton, 35,000 people in the core, 107,000 in our region, it's just uh, astounding. How can we ever do something about the broken windows of relationships in our uh, neighborhoods and in our cultures? Well, you know what I've noticed is that Jesus' strategy was never to drum up crowds in order to build a movement. You never see Jesus drumming up crowds. What happened is he was always addressing the one in front of him. And as he addressed the one in front of him, it says that the crowds would begin to gather around. Jesus always started with the one. And as he addressed that one, they would go and tell their families and friends, come and see what Jesus has done for me. You know, we might not be able to repair and mend all the relationships of our nation or of our province or even of our city, but what I think we can do is strengthen the relationships that God has placed us in. And as God uh, helps us to strengthen the people in relationships with us, you know, I think he begins really with the ones closest to us, with our families. How many know our families get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly? Right? How many know that we let it all hang out? We let down our guards, we speak our minds, we let our emotions free uh, in front of family. I remember when our kids were little and they would go to the babysitter during the day and we would pick them up. And the babysitter would say, like, oh, they're so great. You know, they're, they're just so helpful and so kind and so considerate. And, you know, they're so great. And then we would come and pick them up and something would happen. I don't know if it was like 4.30, something changed. I don't know. But like, they would be flopping on the floor, crying, screaming, not, not getting, you know, we'd be taking them home and they wouldn't eat their dinner. And I thought, what is happening? Maybe we, the babysitter is just better at it than we are, right? My sister-in-law is a babysitter. She said this happens every day. What happens are the kids are on their best behavior all day with the babysitter, but as soon as they get home with mom and dad, it's just kind of like all of that, the, the, all that stuff. The Bible calls it sin, you know, I don't know. What, but all that just kind of comes out, and we just are ourselves when we are comfortable with the people uh, around us. You know, before we go any further, I want to kind of disclaimer a little bit. I think at church we often talk a lot about the nuclear family, about mom, dad, and the kids. And I think, though, that there's a biblical definition that's a little different than just the nuclear family. See, family, according to our culture, is mom, dad, the kids, right? Maybe grandma, grandpa. But as we look at God's picture of the family, it's much bigger than just that. There's a story in Matthew 12 where Jesus is teaching and he's, uh, you know, doing some mentoring with some people and, and his disciples come and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, your mom and your brothers are here to see you. And he's like, you're, in, you're interrupting me in the middle of my lesson, first off. But secondly, he goes, look around. 
He said, who, he said, who are my mom and my brothers and sisters? He said, these are my mom, my brothers and sisters. Jesus says in verse 50 of Matthew 12, anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Look around you. Look around. You can look around. Look who's sitting beside you. Just turn around and see who is singing so nicely behind you today. The we're family. The Bible says good, bad, and ugly. We're family. Turn to your neighbor and say, for better or worse, we're family. <laughs> Turn to your other neighbor and say, we're not perfect, but we're family. <laughs> See what Jesus is doing here, he's not rejecting the nuclear family. He said that is so important to spiritual life and culture and development, but he's expanding it to include all who would follow him. See, family is not just physical, it's spiritual. God's absolutely committed to ensuring that nobody stands alone because everyone needs someone sometime to stand with them as family. Psalm 68 verse five says that God is father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy and God places the lonely in families. See, God follows the value, he knows the value and strength of belonging to family. God knows the importance of family. The Bible tells us that God exists in relationship uh, with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It is a family of sorts. God positions you and I not only to belong to a spiritual family, though, but he positions us to bring strength, to help the family stand up and help us to rebuild the brokenness of this world by relationship. So that's what we want to talk about a little bit more today. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been in the series going through Ephesians, that we called it Made New. And in the series, we've been seeing that the Apostle Paul starts out at the first half, really talking a lot about what God has done in us and for us, a lot of theology. He's really setting up what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. But what we see in the second half is that God's made it, uh, Paul goes really practical. Now that we believe this, what do we do with it? How do our beliefs determine our, and affect our behavior? See, we've been talking about this idea about being made new. Paul doesn't say that God just makes us nice. He says that he makes us new. And so our new life comes with new ways of living. And so if you turn to me to Ephesians chapter 5, as I said in week 1, what begins in the heavenlies finds its way into our home. This isn't just a Sunday thing. This is an everyday thing. This isn't just an public thing. This is God transforming us, even at the core of where we live. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Right there. We're family. We can't get away from it today. You're my family. You're stuck with me. I'm stuck with you. That's amazing. Ephesians 5 verse 1, imitate God, therefore, in everything we do because we're family. And so what follows in verse 3 to 20 uh, is talking about living out this new life in this really personal way as, as Pastor Riley preached so well last week. And we just talked about this new way of living in our personal lives. But now Paul's going to switch gears a bit and he's going to take it from our personal life to our relational life. And so we come to Ephesians 5 verse 21. And further, he says, so and further, imitate God in everything you do, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
you remember verse, uh, week one, we talked about who's Paul talking to here? He's talking to some new non-Jewish believers who become faithful followers of Jesus. And so what is he calling them to do? He's calling them to submit one, to one another, all of them in submission to each other out of reverence for Christ. My first point I want to share with you today is that it's never just between you and me. It's always us three. You're going to see, I was on a roll this week. I got some really creative points. You're going to see, as it unfolds, you'll see the creativity was flowing in my office. There's the anointing, I'm sure. It's never just between you and me. It's always us three. Because your relationship with God dictates your relationship with people. You know, as he has been prevalent throughout this letter, the reference point for this new life that we're living is our relationship with Jesus. New lives come with new ways of living, and the reference point is always Jesus. It's not how people treat me. It's not how people interact with me. It's not how people are living their lives out. It's my relationship with Jesus determines how I live my new life because it's all about how God has treated me. And out of response, that's how I live and how I have my relationship. I, I know it's hard because people fail us. But God is faithful. And so the reference point for this new life is Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. You can say you love people and not love God. There's a lot of people in our society, a lot of people in our city who are really great people. They love people, but they don't love God. But here's the thing. You can't say you love God and not love people. Let me say that again. You can love people and say that you don't love God, but you can't love God and say you don't love people. Look at this in 1 John 4, 20. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they can see, uh, they cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus takes it personally how we interact with each other because they are his children and his image bearers too. All of us are the creation and handiwork of God. Matthew 25, Jesus is talking to some of his followers. He says, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Jesus takes it personally. It's never just between you and me. It's always us three. God's always in the mix in our relationship. Well, number two, I told you, it was the anointing or the creativity or maybe just a lot of caffeine, I don't know. But number two is this. It's mutually you before me. It's mutually you before me. It says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, this is a word that really makes some people uncomfortable, this word submit. How many know that it makes us uncomfortable? The, the, the Greek here is the hapotasso. Uh, hapotasso is this word, and it really means to arrange under, or to rank under, or to yield. It's, it's, a, it's a perspective of yourself as lower in rank than the other person. Culturally, we have a problem with submission, don't we? A lot of us don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> Submission makes us feel inferior or devalued. 
Submission makes us feel like we're open to vulnerability, maybe even open to abuse, to being taken advantage of. Biblical submission isn't a reflection of inferiority or diminished worth. It's a reflection of strength exercising humility. Submission is the example set by Jesus himself, who scripture says was himself submitted to the will of God. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 3. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. But be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. That's the word submit. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then, uh, then Paul continues. He begins to list this attitude that Christ had. That Jesus gave up his rights to independence and autonomy. He stepped out of heaven. It says that Jesus used his strength and power not for his own benefit, but for our benefit. Although it came at great personal sacrifice, Jesus lowered himself in order to lift us up. That is submission. That's what we're being called to do in mutually submitting to each other. To give up our rights to independence and autonomy. I'm not living for myself. I'm living for the collective good of the kingdom of God. I'm not using my strength and my power for my own glory or my own advancement. I want to use it for the advancement and benefit of those around me. I want to lower myself in order to lift others up. That's what leadership is. That's what authority is. It's using your strength in order to lift others up. So we're like, okay, Paul, I got you. Submit one to another. Mutually you before me. I got it. If we're all doing that, that sounds great. You know, I, I can live with that. And, and then Paul goes and makes the abstract really personable. He goes, there's three relationship dynamics that if you can live this out in these three areas, you can live them out with anyone. How many know it's easier sometimes to, to treat strangers with kindness than the people that are closest to us at times, right? He said, if you can live out this in these three areas, you'll have no problem living it out in the rest of society. And, and so he said, I want these three relationships that are going to hit closest to home with our listeners. He goes on to talk about marriage, children, and another one that we'll have to have a little bit of uh, conversation surrounding. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now this passage has been used heavy-handedly at times to negatively attempt to relegate women to a role of subservience. That's not Paul's, uh, what he's doing here. Uh, what we see here, that's furthest from the truth because we see he's already set out the context of mutual submission, hasn't he? He's already set that out. Well, let's keep reading verse 25. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. 
No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of this body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now it's important to have some context as we read scripture. As we think through, Paul is writing to first century uh, non-Jewish believers who are living in Rome. And Rome at this time is a mess when it comes to marriage. Rome is a mess. Marriage was often entered into as a way of maintaining bloodlines or of advancing family status. You know, among the more wealthy and privileged classes, we see that that, uh, girls and women would be pledged to be married to much older men, often even before they were to reach puberty. It was this uh, this way of, of asserting dominance and gaining authority within culture. Few of the privileged class married for love. Often it was a transaction, uh, a, a transference of authority or, or power. And as a result, uh, men would often divorce women uh, in the attempt of finding a wife with more status. It's a way of working your way up the social ladder. So a lot of love missing in this culture. As a result of this, because marriage was transactional, that a lot of extramarital affairs were, uh, were common. The men would just be having affairs all over the place because it was a transactional agreement within their marriage. So whether it was by divorce or by death of their much older husband, women were often left to remarry and often multiple times as a way of surviving. That was the way that they would be able to economically survive. Author and, uh, and uh, theologian Luch Lombardi, he writes this. He says, in this context, it was typical for husbands to be authoritarian, selfish, neglectful, and mostly absent. Women lost a sense of identity and significance because of it. And so they were lured into the same power plays and scheming as men in order to make their way in life. And it became a culture of vying for control over each other. From the emperor down to the slave, each person's social identity was based on, what, uh, on who had power to control the other. The goal was domination, with men generally succeeding and women failing. And so it's into this crazy cultural context that Paul is writing. Uh, in these, these power plays and these assertions of power as people are trying to dominate each other, Paul says it's not the same for you. Because you have been made new. Dominance and domination is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is submitting one to the other. We see here marriage is not about me, but about we. That's good. I'm enjoying it. I'm, I, I, think, I think it's creative. It's good. Verse 31 says, a man leaves his father and mother, he's joined his wife, and the two are united into one. Submission in marriage isn't about uh, diminishing or uh, being subject to abuse. It's not, uh, that's exactly the opposite of what Paul is pushing against. You, you can see that that's the culture he's saying. It's not that way for you. Marriage is a union of husband and wife submitted together under the authority of Jesus for their mutual benefit and blessing. Submission is about sharing your whole self without fear, 
without manipulation. It's really about lowering yourself in order to lift up someone else. In a marriage, that's what husband and wife are doing. Together we're lowering ourselves in order to lift up our spouse. See, submission, according to the Bible, says I have everything I need in Jesus. My identity is secure. My purpose is secure. I have all that I need in Jesus. And as I come into this relationship, I come alongside of you to help you fulfill God's plans and purposes for your life without losing sight of my own. Because I'm secure in who I am in Jesus. Let me help you discover and be who you've been called to be in Jesus. You know, in every pre-marriage coaching session I do, I always do a number of sessions before I do uh, anyone's marriage. And one of the things we always talk about is that as a couple, we're a team. We're a team. And, and as a team, we can't fight each other. How do we know if you're fighting your team, even if one of you loses, or if one of you wins and the other loses, that means that you both lose. How many have ever been in a relationship where you won against your partner or your spouse? Right? Even though you won, it sure seemed like you lost, right? If I win and you lose, we both lose. Well, we're not going to fight each other. We're a team, so we're going to fight every obstacle. We're going to fight every situation. We're going to fight against what comes against us to win together. Marriage is not about me, but about we. Now, I just want to touch really briefly on this because I know Paul writes here that husband is head of his wife as Christ is head of the church. A woman once said, well, if my husband's the head, then I'm the neck that turns the head. <laughs> it's important to remember that Paul isn't ascribing power to the patriarchy in this conversation. They already have that. That's already what's going on. He's saying, for Paul to actually even address men in this letter, in this context, would be very countercultural. Normally, the, the, the mode of the day would be women, this is what you need to do. Children, this is what you need to do. Like, whatever the man says, just do it. But he's addressing the men here. And, and he's saying as head, headship isn't lordship. Headship, leadership isn't lordship. Your family's not subject to you. You're really the lead servant. What did Jesus do? He lowered himself in order to lift others up. Headship's not about making all the decisions. Headship is about creating the tone and the direction for your family, leaning in together to say, family, let's rally around what God's calling us to do and let's do it together. Well, let's go on. Ephesians 6, verses one to four. Now, remember in week one I said that this letter's not written in chapters and verses, right? And so even though we're starting a new chapter here, it wasn't written that way originally. Verse six goes on under this idea of submission, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. And all the parents said, Amen. For this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. And you will have a long life on earth. Kids, honor me and your mom and you'll have a long life. <laughs> Dishonor and it might get shorter. I don't know. We'll see. We could talk a lot about honor, and we don't really have time for it today. But I just want to notice here that honor doesn't have anything to do with the merit of the person that you're honoring. He says honor because it's an attitude of your heart before God. And so I know that some of us here, we have different relationships with our parents, maybe our fathers on Father's Day, our mothers, whatever it is. You can still honor your family. 
Honor those who God has placed in your circle without necessarily having them worthy of that respect. Something to think about. Verse four says this, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up, remember, lower yourself to lift them up, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Parenting is about helping them see and setting them free. I'm, I'm, that's awesome. This is, this is good preaching right here. I got one more for you. It's the best one, you'll see. See, rather than the absent or authoritarian or abusive father figures prevalent in Roman culture, Paul's pushing against that, where children were just property. Children were to be seen and not heard. Paul is saying, you have a responsibility not to push them down, not to discourage them, but he says, I want you to lean in and lift them up. I want you to make an investment into their spiritual development and social growth. The idea is for them to help them see who God's called and created them to be and then to set them free on that course. Uh, as we can't have our kids at home our whole lives. You know, we have to at one point set them free into God's plans and purpose. If that's the goal from the moment they're born, we think the moment they're born, our goal is to protect them. I know, I made that drive home from the hospital that first day. Everything in my mind was how do I protect this kid? My goal is not to protect my kids. I pray safety over my kids. I play, I, I do my best to, to safeguard them, but my goal is to disciple them, help them to be disciplined, not just authoritarian discipline, but to become disciplined. To become disciplined in how they fight their urges. Disciplined in how they conduct themselves in social settings. Disciplined in, uh, in helping them uh, have soundness of their finances, of their decision making. Just to be disciplined. To be God-fearing and then to release them to the calling that God has. My goal is not for my kids to be safe. My goal is for my kids to be launched into what God's called them to do. That's my primary concern. You know, this is tough to understand sometimes. So I just, I just sit there. So parenting is about helping them see and setting them free. And this is the last one. It's all for G-O-D. See, there we go. It's all for G-O-D. I had to get the rhyme in there. I'll hear about it at a staff meeting. They'll be like, oh, it was so cringe. Why did you do it? And I'll be like, it's okay. I'm a father. Father's Day. I can be cringy on Father's Day. It's Okay. Now this last section, and, and part of the reason I'm, I'm really packing a lot in today is because we only have one more week next week in the series, and then we gotta start our summer series. So summer's coming. I love to extend this. There's a lot here. I would love to extend it, but we gotta get to the summer series. How many of you are ready for summer? Right? All right. Amen. So we got, this is just the last little bit. It's all for G-O-D. Now this context is hard to understand because we, and like I said, this context has to do with masters and slaves. Now, if you're joining us today for the first time, or, or maybe uh, you're watching online, uh, I can't unpack that thoroughly, but it's estimated that 70% of Roman society at this point uh, were of a slave nature. Uh, some of them even voluntarily. And it's not quite like we think about uh, slavery in the context we think about today. And so I just want to give you a good resource. If you go to our uh, web page on our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash 
Bethel Church Penticton. And then in May 16th of 2021, uh, Pastor Dave, who was here, Dave Funk, he preached a sermon called Does the Bible Condone Slavery? And so I would love for you to go there uh, on our web channel and you can look more into the nuances of what the biblical uh, narrative is around slavery. But Ephesians 5, verse, or sorry, 6, verse 5, it's our last chunk today, says this, says, slaves obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. How many of you are slave to your job? You're going to go there next, tomorrow and you're going to go, okay. And the Bible says work for wherever you're working for as though it's for the Lord. Remember, the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Paul's basically, it's in a context. Can you imagine right now if I said to you, imagine a world without cars, You'd be like, I can't even imagine that. Like, how would we even get to that place? This is the context Paul's working in within the culture. Like, imagine a culture without slavery, and they would be like, I can't even imagine that. But Paul's coming alongside, and he's saying, even within that structure, even within that system, we are called to a different way. He said, slaves, serve your master as though you're serving Jesus. And masters, love your slaves and care for them because they are the children of God. They are your brothers and sisters. Imagine this dynamic playing out. Imagine the household where this is being lived out. People would be like, this is different than we are used to in our culture. How do we steward our lives? How do we use our gifts and our power and our authority to lift others up? That's what Paul's talking about here. Remember, it's all for G-O-D. It's not for selfish gain or ambition. It's for the kingdom and work of God. I want to close with this this morning. Just a little story in my own personal life. Pat Hollinger was a small businessman and he had a cleaning company. And they would go into office buildings after hours and they would clean the offices. And of course, Pat, uh, he'd been doing it long enough that he had a crew that worked for him. And being the boss, he could easily delegate the jobs that he didn't want to do. He could pass those off to his crew. But Pat wasn't above doing anything himself. In fact, he'd often get right in there with his staff, even sometimes donning the, the rubber gloves to help them scrub the bathroom toilets. And that's what made an impression on one of his young employees. That's what opened up the door of conversation for Pat to be able to share with him this transforming faith that he had found in Jesus Christ. That's what opened up the door for my dad to be the first one to hear in his family about Jesus and to accept God into his life as a personal Lord and Savior. Soon after that, my dad met and married my mom, and together they dedicated their life and their marriage to serving Jesus together, wherever that would lead them. As a young couple, that led them down the path of adoption for me and my brother, and they were determined that they would live their lives propelling us, first and foremost, to follow Jesus and pursue his calling on our lives. They modeled that for me my whole life. I remember that... When I was eight years old, my dad was 37. 
feeling the call to ministry. My mom and dad resigned from their jobs and my dad went to Bible college to pursue a full-time career as a pastor. I remember eight years old and my dad going to college. And I remember that when it became time for God's personal call on my life, what had been modeled for me was that faithfulness, that surrender to God, that submission to God's plan and purpose for my life. And so as I think about that today on this Father's Day, the submission of one businessman to lower himself in order to lift up a young employee. As I think about a young married couple lowering themselves to lift up children, even adopted children. As I think about this middle-aged parents live, quitting their jobs in order to uh, lift up churches all across Eastern Ontario because God was calling them to do it. Uh, I, I wonder if part of the reason that I'm serving Jesus and standing before you today is because people under submission to God submitted to each other and used their power and their authority to lift up others around them. This morning on this Father's Day, fathers, we love you. Mothers, we love you. Children, we love you. The question is this, how do we use our relationships to lower ourselves and to lift up others around us? How will we use our power? How will we use our authority to raise up the people that God has placed in our path? So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me this morning and I wanna pray a blessing over you today. All the men, all the fathers, all of those who are surrounding you and encouraging you and cheering you on. Heavenly Father, I thank you today for this challenging word. Lord, it's hard for us to submit to each other because we're afraid that we're gonna be taken advantage of, afraid that we'd be walked over, afraid that we might be vulnerable, God, some of us have been in relationships where we've been abused. I pray today, God, that you would see that as we turn our cares and our, our burdens to you, God, that you would make us whole again. God, that you would heal the hurt of brokenness from the broken relationships that we've been a part of. God, where power and authority have been held over us and lorded over us. I pray, Jesus, that we would find comfort and peace in you today, that you would give us the courage to step out and to submit ourselves again to the people around us and to find in mutual submission a lifting up, a strengthening, an encouraging. God, I pray as a church here in this community that our families would be thriving. Lord, I pray for those that are in distress right now, God, that you would lead them through your Holy Spirit towards health and healing. Lord, help us to come alongside of them, we pray, Lord Jesus. Lord, I ask, Lord God, today for every person in this place, Lord, to be in a position to use their leadership, to use their authority, to lift up others around them. And as we live countercultural to the world that's trying to get ahead, that's trying to make a name for themselves, that's trying to use authority for their own benefit, I pray, God, that there would be a, a turning of hearts to you, that this would be a compelling family to be a part of. Lord, for those that are away from family today, God, we pray, Jesus, that you would fill in the cracks 
uh, the, those longings, Lord God. Lord, for those that have had absent fathers or uh, uh, fathers who've been less than perfect, Lord, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see them through your eyes. Eyes of love and compassion, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, it's been a different day. Some creative points. Difficult subject matter at times, perhaps. But the blessing of living in submission, that we experience the love and the acceptance and the propelling forward that God has intended for us. And so I pray that today you would go, that you would enjoy all the relationships that God has for you. God bless you. Take care. We'll see you next week.